0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu, that's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushdini Copyright 2007 Mark R. Rushdini Published by Calcedon Ross House Books, P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession, by R.J. Rushdini. Chapter 7. Confession and the Past Perhaps no historical study of confession can rival that of Henry C. Lee. His account of the practice of auricular confession in the medieval church is a masterly work, representing careful and extensive research, and is deservedly regarded as a masterpiece. It is, however, somewhat irrelevant to our concern. Lee saw clearly the abuses of the confessional, and he gives a remarkable, if sad, history thereof. The fact remains that Lee's account is a chronicle of abuses. The theological validity, or non-validity, of the Roman Catholic confessional is not his subject. A comparison is in order here. The modern psychotherapeutic confessional to psychiatrists, psychologists and psychoanalysts has a sordid record of abuses also, including a much too high rate of sexual relations between the therapist and the patient. If psychotherapy is a valid form of the confessional, then the abuses thereof no more invalidate the confessional than does the malpractice by some physicians invalidate all medical practice. Courts of law are today commonly unjust. This does not invalidate the need for courts of law. Thus, abuses are not the key. The theological validity is. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, noted that he could cite many instances of the misuse of the confessional by ungodly and immoral priests. He did not do so. His concern was theological, not historical in its essence. His critique of the late medieval confessional, which he well knew is carefully and biblically argued and developed. It needs no rehearsing here. Two of his arguments are of concern to our argument. First, Calvin turned to St. Bernard for a very important conclusion. On this subject, Bernard also gives a very useful admonition. Sorrow for sin is necessary, if it is not perpetual. I advise you sometimes to quit the anxious and painful recollection of your own ways and to arise to an agreeable and serene resemblance of the divine blessings. Let us mingle honey with wormwood, that its salutary bitterness may restore our health, when it shall be drunk, tempered with a mixture of sweetness, and, if you reflect on your own meanness, reflect also on the goodness of the Lord. Quote. The God of grace sees neither virtue nor merit in an endless mournfulness and misery over one's sins. Such an attitude indicates an unawareness of forgiveness and grace. It knows Golgotha, but not the empty tomb and the joy of resurrection. The endless caterwauling of some people about their sins is not only repulsive, but also sounds suspiciously like boasting. For a time in the 1950s, it was popular at some religious conferences to parade once flagrant and ostensibly saved sinners as testimonial speakers. Their witness was heavy on the side of graphic accounts of sinning and abysmally weak in the knowledge of scripture. Bernard's counsel is excellent. Sorrow for sin is necessary if it is not perpetual. Confession means praise, and it means praise because true confession knows grace. It is God-centered, not man-centered. Man-centered confessions can include some made to show how sensitive a soul the confessing person is. There is often a select selectivity also in the confession of sins. As one priest observed, he had never had anyone confess to being stingy. Second, Calvin, inciting James 5.16, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another, said, He, James, connects mutual confession and mutual prayer. If our confessions must be made only to priests, then our prayers ought to be offered up for them alone. End quote. Calvin thus opposed confession to the clergy alone. He refused to tie the validity of the confessional to the church, but linked it rather to God. He was not averse to confessions to the clergy, and was in the church prior to communion celebrations to hear those who wanted and needed a pastor for their confession. Normally, each person was to confess directly and specifically to God through Christ. Some sins might require a confession also to the person sinned against, and still others to the congregation. The unchanging aspect of the confession is that it must be God-centered. This excludes a church-centered confession and also a man-centered one. The focus is neither on other men nor ourselves, it is God and His law whom we essentially offend. This means that while confession must be specific, it must not be a detailed catalogue God requires us to recognize what kinds of sin we are guilty of, not to list them endlessly. The focus of confession is not our sins, but God's grace. One briefly and locally prominent evangelist of the 1930s was very prone to reciting his sins specifically in his sermons. What one heard, he was a strong and handsome man, told all how appealing he was to many women and how powerfully he physically abused men who angered him. Not surprisingly, he went astray in time. Such men are more proud of their sins than fixed in God's grace. St. John Chrysostom said of confession, Wouldst thou learn words of thanksgiving? Hearken unto the three children, saying, We have sinned, we have transgressed. Thou art righteous, O Lord, in all that thou hast done unto us, because thou hast brought all things upon us by a true judgment." For to confess one's own sins, this is to give thanks with confession unto God, a kind of thing which implies one to be guilty of numberless offences, yet not to have the due penalty exacted. This man most of all is the giver of thanks. End quote. The conclusion of confession is gratitude for sins forgiven. It is the restoration of fellowship with God, and it is the re-establishment, by restitution, of community with our fellow man. This is why Chrysostom linked confession with thanksgiving. The conclusion of true confession is joy, because it gives us freedom from past sins. Confession thus confronts us with our past to free us for our future. Societies without confession, like men without confession, remain past bound. Stalin in the 1930s staged trials of all who opposed him or whom he imagined opposed him. Those on trial were forced by torture to confess to a multitude of sins, mostly uncommitted ones. The Soviet regime was supposedly purging itself of bourgeois capitalistic past by these trials. Of course nothing valid was gained. The true sins of the Marxist world were never confronted. There was no absolution and the result was less freedom. False confessions leave men and nations more past bound. But false confessions are very popular in the modern world and politically promoted. These false confessions are not theologically valid. They are confessions to such vague offences as imperialism, colonialism, Eurocentricism and so on. Sins both invented and defined by the humanists. People who have never had anything to do with policies of state are charged by an intellectual policy-making elite for offences unconnected with their lives. Besides being evil, such false confessions manifest a past-bound mentality. True confession frees us from the past. False confession binds us to it. This is the end of chapter 7.